Isaiah chapter 34, where Pastor Laban was reading for us earlier. My subtitle says, Woe to the nations. Come near you nations to hear and heed you people. And let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. And that's as far as we go because the rest of the chapter is described, if you look down to verse 8, for the day of the Lord's vengeance, and in verse 2, the indignation. These are all different words that describe the same event that we call the Great Tribulation Period. Let me just give you a little bit of background from our Wednesday night chapters that we went through. We ended on Wednesday with chapter 35. Chapter 1 to chapter 35 is actually the first division of the book of Isaiah. And it deals with local judgments of the nations. It leads us into what we'll be starting next Wednesday night on the second division from chapters 36 to 40. Now we're going to look at just one king whose name is Hezekiah. And uh, he gets sick and the Lord's going to heal him. And that's chapter 36 through 40. From 40 to 66, and this would be the third division of the book, we have some of the most profound prophecies about the Messiah and Jesus found anywhere in the Bible. It talks a lot about the kingdom that's coming. Well, we're talking about the tribulation here this morning. This now ends more on a brighter note as it lays out what it's going to be like during that thousand-year Kingdom millennial reign. From chapter, going back now to the first division, 28 to 35, what Isaiah pronounces is six different, what we call woe judgments that are being pronounced. Woe to Assyria, woe to Babylon. And there were six of them that we covered. In chapter 33, the final woe is pronounced on all those who will spoil the land. And in chapter 33, this chapter pronounced judgment upon those who would seek to destroy God's people. You know, gang, Genesis 12, 3 comes in here, and it's applicable for today. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. I think of uh, what's coming to mind is, is the British Empire, and how, you know, they said the sun never set on the British Empire at one time. But in 47, They pulled their support. Uh, People escaping from the Holocaust, the Brits wouldn't let them back into the land. And it was from that moment on. I was going to India a lot during the 90s and early 2000s. And I saw the influence that Britain had on India as a nation, the rail system. And and any development really was from the Brits. They still still have tea time at 4 o'clock, the average Indian. But it has gone from that to um, the talk this week of actually pulling out of the EU, completely being dominated by Muslims in London. And I see the decline. But the timing of the decline, 47, and their turning away from Israel, I think is very, very interesting. So as we look at chapter 33, it's the sixth woe, and it's pronounced against those who would come against uh, the land of Israel. Now as we look at chapter 34, this chapter brings to an end the section which... You could outline it, the kingdom, the process, and the program 
which leads to the throne being established on the earth when the Lord will rule and reign. So it's a progression. But chapter 34, to be a part of that progression, has to deal with this woe judgment, not just on Assyria or this nation or that nation. Here it says in verse 2, against all nations. So what I'm not going to be able to stress enough this morning, because we've become desensitized to so many things in our society, is just how horrific and horrible this period of time is going to be. And it's not a local judgment. This is a worldwide judgment that will take place after the rapture of the church. Now, God's purpose in the Old Testament for Israel, I've called this this morning, Can I Get a Witness? And yes, some of you picked up on the lyrical song part of that. (laughs) He got saved, by the way. Um, God's purpose for Israel was to be a witness to the nations. They were to be unique. When he called them into the land, he said, you shall not learn to do after the abominations of the nations that are there. Deuteronomy 18, and he goes through the list. Uh, you You won't have mediums or sorcerers. You will not allow your sons or daughters to pass through the fire. Complete heathenism off the charts. And yet, both Judah and Israel, when I say Israel, I'm talking about the 10 northern tribes. When I say Judah, I'm speaking of the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Unfortunately, they would both fall and fail. The tribes in the north fell first. The 10 northern tribes fell in 721 BC to Assyria uh, for many reasons, probably the worst, Ahab marrying Jezebel, introducing Baal worship. Of course, Jeroboam had set up the two golden calves, one in Bethel and the other one up in the Teldan. And they were actually worse than the people that were there before. And so the Lord allowed Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, to come in and take them into captivity, 721 B.C. Judah would fall to Babylon, but God would deliver them from the Assyrians. The Assyrians, feeling they were on a roll, began now to lay siege against Jerusalem, but I'm going to keep that for next week and 36 to 40. But they would eventually fall to the Babylonians because they fell into a lot of the same sins that the ten northern tribes. In chapter 34, the chapter is about the great tribulation. It is a future woe. Now it's being contrasted. We just had six woes locally against nations. This, again, is different because this woe is pronounced against the entire world. It is yet future, where the chapters before have all been, even though they were prophecies during Isaiah's time, they came exactly true, exactly like Isaiah said they would. And the name for it here, just so there's no doubt about it, let's go back to verse two, is called the indignation, and then against all nations, and then in verse eight, it says, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. When you read Revelation 6, I believe it's verse 17, it says, the uh, wrath of the Lamb has come. Now, we don't think about our Lord Jesus, our Savior, in such terms. But when he comes, he's not coming the second time as a lowly servant riding on a donkey. No, this time he's coming out with sword drawn, with a robe, king of kings and, and lord of lords, and he'll take care of business at a very, very short order. And that's what we have in view here. 
but it's not until the earth has to go through uh, this seven-year period of time, yet future. Uh, The chapters, we'll be going to some of them this morning, is Revelation chapter 6, where Jesus opens his first scroll. That's the beginning. It ends in chapter 16 with the last bowl judgment, where great hailstones fall upon the earth, and the earth is pretty much destroyed as a result of this last judgment. It continues and steadily intensifies as we go through this seven-year period of time. Now, I looked up the word woe, King James Dictionary, and they gave a definition and an example in the scripture. Uh, Their definition is an expression of grief or indignation. And then they apply it um, when Jesus was speaking of Judas Iscariot. And he says, the son of man goes as it is written of him. And then it says, but woe unto that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had never been born. So that's the context. When you think of the word woe, to think it would be better that you never come into this life than to go where Judas Iscariot is today. It would have been better for him never to have been born. And kicking it around and and thinking about how do you deal with such a heavy subject and uh, spread it out so we can wrap our head around it, um, I laid out a a pattern, or the Lord helped me to, with looking at it from three different perspectives. This morning we'll look at the literal woes that Isaiah in chapter 34 speaks of in the book of Revelation. So we're going to take chapter 34, instead of going through all 17 verses, which we'll do on Wednesday, which we've done, um, we will look and actually see where these woes are again used in the book of Revelation. Woe occurs seven times in the book of Revelation, but primarily around three of them. Secondly, how Jesus used the word woe in the New Testament. He pronounced woes, especially upon the religious hierarchy and their leadership. And so we'll be looking at it from that perspective. And then thirdly, um, this morning, uh, how the Apostle Paul, Jude, also speaks to us and uh, pronounces a woe that if we don't understand this information and be able to articulate it to our people that are in our sphere of influence, and if we really don't grasp the intensity of it, well, the bottom line is you're going to have people that you really care about. And if we really believe this stuff and realize that you have people that are going to enter into it, Paul, I'll give a little bit of it away now. Paul says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Woe to me. Knowing what I know, if I don't warn some of the people that I care about, yeah, they'll write you off. <laughs> yeah, they'll talk behind your back. And yes, they'll call you a fool. But you're in good company because Paul said, I'm a fool for Christ. There's a song that everybody, somebody's fool. Whose fool do you want to be? I'll be a fool for the Lord. And especially if I can jerk them just enough to get them thinking about it. With this. What if, what if it's true? What if what they say is true? 
That's where you want to get them. If it's true, they have everything to lose. If it's not true, you don't have anything to lose. So it's a good way to put it. What do you got to lose? To check this out, to see if there's any chance, let's say one in 10 million, that you might end up in this period of time. Are you willing to roll the dice on that? I'm not. I've often said I'm not walking across that street out there unless I know my name's put in the book upstairs. Amen? I want that assurance. And so this morning, as we dive in um, to this, we'll look at the necessity of, of um, why Israel failed and uh, the necessity of the working of the, the Holy Spirit. It has to be a part of our witness. They failed as a witness. Uh, but they have a future promise. They failed because they were... Um, the Lord knew they would fail. He comes out in the New Testament. He says, I gave you the law so that you would figure out that you can't do it. The law is our schoolmaster to say, here's the standard. Try to reach it. So we read in the, in the New Testament, yes, I've given you the law, but it was only a school, like a school teacher to show you that there's no way you're going to pull this off because the law says, thou shalt not steal. Question, has anybody ever stolen anything from here? If you've never stolen anything, please raise your hand, because then I can call you a liar too. Okay? (laughs) So you've broken the law, and the law says if you've broken one of them, what's the rest of it? You're guilty of all of it. And so Jesus said, don't think that I've come to break the law. I haven't come to break it. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to live the perfect life. I never did lie. I never did steal. I never did lust. He lived the perfect life. And he's the only one who can take our place and be the sacrifice, that lamb without blemish. But in order to live the Christian life to any capacity, not perfectly, but certainly better, is with uh, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. With that being said, I'm going to just deal with Israel and have you turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 39. We... Um, finished Ezekiel men's prayer. We happen to be in Daniel right now. We read seven, eight, and nine yesterday. Interesting timing with that. But of course, I believe the stage is being set as we speak this morning for this battle to take place in the Middle East. And um, as I've said often, 36 and 37 is fulfilled. And that is that Israel, after being out of the land since 70 A.D., became a nation in one day, that was a prophecy, on May 14th, 1948, one day. And um, they are back in the land, but they're back in the land in unbelief. Now the reoccurring phrase in the book of Ezekiel 54 times is then they shall know that I am the Lord. But the main place that that, that uh, then they shall know that I am the Lord really happens after they are so overwhelmed by this force led by Russia and Iran. Isn't that interesting? And just just to keep you a little bit up to date on the cutting edge, this is what I learned in the last two days. It says they're going to come down to take a spoil. There's other reasons for them being there besides ISIS. That natural gas find off the coast of Haifa in the Mediterranean 
they're just reporting that it's three times larger than what they thought it was. So now you have, in the last year, this huge oil discovery on the Golan Heights, 10 times larger than an average discovery with fine crude. And now just within the last two days, they just discovered that, I think they call it Leviathan Find or something like that, it's actually three times larger. The EU is already negotiating with Israel for that. They're already building pipelines and and exporting it to um, Jordan. But now, with the discovery of that, that can only have Putin's chops um, smack it even more as he considers that they're already there with boots on the ground. So we find... At the, this will bring about a war. That's what chapter 38 is about. We call it the Ezekiel 38 war. God gets directly involved. The first verse of chapter 39, if you have the old King James Bible, tells you that five, six are destroyed. And one, six, hightail it back to Russia. And then it says fire is going to be sent upon Russia. And Israel, for the first time, Maybe since the great delivery from, from Egypt with the miracles is that Israel is going to see the God of Israel at work again. And when that happens, the very last verse of chapter 39, when they realize that it's going to take seven months for them to clean up the carnage as he's victorious, chapter 39, the last verse says, And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord. I've entitled this this morning, Can I Get a Witness? They failed. But I believe it's impossible to be a Christian witness without the Holy Spirit. Somebody want to say amen? Amen. Didn't we just read a couple weeks ago, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain? Jesus said, by yourself, you can do what? But with me, you can do all things. Well, what does he mean, with me? Well, here, after this event, there's going to be a revival. Again, and in Romans, it talks about when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, when the church is taken out, then Israel gets saved, and they become witnesses. They were the Old Testament witness. They failed. Um, He he came to the early church and for the last 2,000 years, uh, as a matter of fact, this would be a good time to turn to Acts chapter two. And let me just lay this out a little bit as you're turning to it. Jesus was talking to the disciples in John 14 about the promise. And the promise, the word there is paracletus or comforter. He says, I'm gonna send you basically the Holy Spirit. He says he's with you now, but he's going to be in you. And then before he's taken into heaven, he's given the great commission, go into all the world, right, and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the ends of the world. So he's given them the charge, but with the charge, he also gives further instructions. He says, stop. I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you guys have received the power because you can't do it on your own. So even though the commission has been given, the instruction is to wait in Jerusalem until the promise 
has come. So when you look at Acts chapter 2, we find that the Holy Spirit falls on these believers and you know, they started, they were from all over the world, from Libya, from um, Egypt, uh, from Rome, Mesopotamia, Asia, Jews from all over the world. And they were just there. And all of a sudden, this is the only time where the Holy Spirit manifests himself in such a way that it could be seen and heard. Came in like a mighty washing wind but there was also little clothes of fire over their head, so it was visible. And then they began to speak in these other languages, praising God. And the non-believers, they just said, uh, verse 15, they said, these guys are drunk. Uh, verse 13, others mocked, they're full of new wine. Peter says, look, guys, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, they're not drunk, all right? And then he declares to them He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then in verse 17, he explains that this was the beginning of the last days. He says, it will come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. First of all, this is not a fulfillment. He's only pointing to the the tribulation period, Ezekiel 39, when the spirit is poured out upon Israel. Because here, it is not yet being poured out on all flesh, just the 3,000. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, future tense, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. This is the tribulation. I believe after Ezekiel 39, that battle, that destroys that whole area. Imagine the Middle East without Israel having a threat against it because they've all been taken care of. And now the Spirit comes upon them And I believe this is where the church is now, either going to be before, during, or after this war. We're out of here. And if we are the, like it says in 1 Corinthians 3, it says, don't you realize you're the temple of the Holy Spirit and God dwells in you? Well, you're going to be removed someday. Good place for an amen right on that one. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm noticing arthritis, and this Neo is complaining about it this morning. Hereditary on the Crandall side. And I thought, oh, Lord, I know what my grandma went through, and I know what my mom went through. Give me a new one now, you know. But here, as we look at um, these, these verses, uh, the witness of the church being taken out. Before the Spirit can come on Israel, Ezekiel 39 the witness of the church has to be removed. God always has a witness. Old Testament Israel. Church age, the church. And um, future tense, once again, back upon Israel, the two witnesses, and also the 144,000 mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, Now, we find that the day of the Lord is clearly mentioned 
as Peter tries to explain what's going on here. But he clearly says, before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord, and it will come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This prophecy by Joel is speaking more of what we're reading in Isaiah 34, the great tribulation period. And there's a lot going on. But a lot of Israel is being saved at this time. All right, let's go to the fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 8. And we'll come back and we'll talk about this. I want to look at uh, 12 and 13. Verse 12 says, One woe is past, but still two more woes are to come. Chapter 8, verse 13, after the fourth trumpet in verse 13, he says, I looked and I heard an angel saying, through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. There are three woe judgments. The first one is the fifth trumpet. And I gotta tell you, gang, this is to me the, the, the most strange, strangest chapter in the entire Bible. And it deals with an angel coming down, verse one, given a key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit, smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions on the, on the earth have power. Uh, they were commanded not to harm the grass or the earth, strange locusts, or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were uh, not given authority to kill anybody, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. I've seen scorpions, never been stung by one, but I hear it's very painful. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. And the shape of the locusts was like Horses prepared for battle and their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like faces of men. They had hair like women and their teeth were teeth like lion's teeth. They had breath, breast plates like breath plates of iron and the sounds of the wings was like the sounds of chariots with many horses running into battle. Now, those who have a hard time with miracles and taking this literally will say, well, it sounds like a helicopter to me. Well, first of all, there aren't helicopters in hell, okay? And when they come out, they actually have a ruler over them. Their tails, like scorpions, and, they, and their stingers in the tail, and they have power to hurt men for five months. And they had a king over them of the bottomless pit whose name in the Hebrew is Abaddon. But in the Greek, it's Apollyon. None other than one of the names of Lucifer himself. So he was the one who was over them. And then after this judgment, I can't even wrap my head around this because it's so bizarre, but I believe it's gonna happen. Amen? 
This is going to happen. I mean, little kids are afraid of the boogeyman under the bed, right? Or, Mommy, would you please check in the closet before you turn off the lights or don't turn off the lights at all? There's this natural fear of just being kids and keeping the lights on. Well, during this five-month period of time, the boogeyman's really there. And, and if you go to Joel, it actually talks about how they move around, climbing in over the wall, into the windows. And to say that this is frightful and fearful is such an understatement. I can't put it into the proper perspective. Imagine the worst horror show you've ever seen and then make it real. And then it says, verse 12, one woe is past. Well, so this tells us that the first woe was what? This judgment that causes men to have pain who didn't receive the seal. Behold, there are still two more woes that are coming after these things. So the first woe introduced us to the, the last half of the great tribulation period. And it had a duration of five months. Apparently, the last two woes will cover the remainder of that period. The warning here indicates that worse things are to follow. And the next trumpet reveals that this was not just an idle warning. So this was bad. But what we're going to find out next is it's actually going to get worse. Let me just interject this at this time. We wake up every day like days we've never had before. We hear of another shooting in another high school somewhere. We hear of another terrorist threat. Uh, the big news right now is getting the information off the iPhone, off these two terrorists. And this is common day stuff. And uh, the crisis in Syria, 250,000 killed. Um, by the way, you heard about the peace treaty? Check out Debka file. And while this peace treaty is taking place, how Iran and Russia is repositioning their troops. And they're taking advantage of all this. So yes, CNN and Fox is going to tell you one thing. But you need to, you need to go to these non-political websites. That'll tell you really what's going on. The only way there's a ceasefire right now is because they're manipulating and moving things around because they can. When they couldn't, if the, if the war was on. You can check it out on a variety of different websites that are there. But I, as I thought about this this morning, I was reminded, and I was talking to Judy about it over breakfast, I said, this reminds me of this whole desensitizing of us as a people because we see it all the time. And I said, I said do you remember the story about the frog in the pot? How many of you heard about the frog in the pot? And I said, I think I'm going to allude to that this morning, but I've got to get my memory back on it. And she says, well, Mary wrote a contender's journal track on it, and you can, you can pick this up. If you've never heard it before, it, it's a perfect illustration of what is happening to us as a country and as a nation. And I'm quoting Mary here as she talks about it. Perhaps... You have heard the old folk adage that says if you place a frog in a pot of boiling water, he will naturally do all he can to jump out. If you place the frog in a comfy, lukewarm pot, however, or so gradually turn up the heat, he will assimilate to this little jacuzzi 
And by the time it's boiling, he will be unaware that he's been cooked. And by then it's too late to save him. And the global temperature continues to rise and rise on every imaginable front, making the world more uncomfortable by the day. And as the signs of the times explode exponentially, they are exploding exponentially. But yet we have, because we've been around it for so long, um, this is true and my heart goes out as I, this is one of the things I hear from parents. They say, Dwight, you're, you're spot on in what you're talking about. But it's so hard to talk about it with our kids because they, they look at it like their whole future and they're thinking of prom and getting married and having kids and, and this generation is different. And I said, you have, you have to be a wise parent and strike a balance here by stating truth and still projecting that the Lord, I think, is coming pretty soon, but I'm living like he might not come for another 100 years, even though I don't believe that for a second. So that's what we need to instill. We, we, we can't cut back on reality and not let them know what's coming down, but still be a parent and encourage them in soccer and, and all the things that kids love to do. There's a balance there. Amen? So we, we speak the truth in love, but we still... My heart goes out to raising kids in these days. Man, it wasn't my generation. I know that. So that was the first woe. Uh, And we have, as we get into this, the reason I wanted to stop and take a break, because the second woe here, we need to turn to chapter 11, picking it up in verse 11. The first part of this, of course, is the two witnesses are finally killed by the Antichrist. They've been faithfully witnessing for 1,260 days. And um, much of Israel gets saved. They can't be killed, but now they are. And the world throws a party. They give away presents. But then in verse 11, it says, Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to, in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In other words, the whole world is watching this. Do you realize you're the only generation that has the technology for this to happen? I mean, I remember we, we were the first people on Cherry Street to have a color TV set when I was growing up as a kid. And certainly we did not have a satellite capabilities to uh, watch the Olympics live in some foreign country. The whole world is going to watch this happen because of the technology that this generation possesses. And they cried out, uh, verse 13, in the same hour, right after this happens, there's a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. The earthquake is going to kill 7,000 men and the rest were afraid and gave Glory to the God of heavens. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, 7,000 have been killed. But the number of the slain was to be added to, to those already slain. Now, this is what's happened up to this point. A fourth of the population of the world was slain at first. 
And after that, then another third of the population of the world, totaling over half. So by the time we get to this second woe and these 7,000 being killed, over half of the world's population is already gone. And now 7,000 more are killed. Is it any wonder that the Lord Jesus said, and except those days be shortened, there should be no flesh that would be saved? The second woe is past, and the third woe is coming quickly. Well, what's the third woe? Let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. We find, actually chapter 12 is, a, if you would try to put the entire Bible in one chapter, Revelation 12 is the synopsis of it. But the first part of it um, is about um, Israel, Jesus, and Lucifer, and how he tried to take out Jesus in the manger at Bethlehem. But then we switch from the earthly in verse six to go into the heavenlies in verse seven. And it says, and war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angel fought against the devil and his angels, and the devils, and they fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out of that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. That's what he did to Job. He railed on Job. He rails on you. He rails on me. He's the accuser of the brethren. But they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Here's the hard one for our country. Because we are self-centered creatures. Say it, amen. (laughs) We are. That's why Jesus says, love your neighbor as what? Yeah, we already love ourselves, that's a given. It just says, show that as much as you care about yourself, show that to other people. So we have no problem with loving ourselves. But, and they did not love their lives. They were willing to die for something. You know the old adage, if you don't have something to die for, then you really have no reason to live for. You got, everybody's looking for a cause. And um, that's why there's a Greenpeace. <laughs> I said that tongue in cheek, but I believe it. You know, my generation was looking for a cause. We wanted to be involved with something. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm for a healthier, a greener planet who isn't. But I don't want it to be my cause. Men are made to want to have a purpose. Women are made to want to know that their life meant something. But it's only when you come to Christ and you realize that you were born to live for him, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him, that that reality becomes meaningful, and actually there's satisfaction and fulfillment in it. But then he says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. What's the word? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the seal, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. What is the third woe? The third woe is, 
Um, Satan being cast down from heaven. There is rejoicing in heaven from this awesome, treacherous, dangerous, and deadly serpent. He's out forever. Then there is a woe on the earth. This is the third woe that extends throughout the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath. The only consolation for the earth is that Satan's um, sojourn on earth here is brief, only 42 months, another way of saying three and a half years. There is an um, intensifying of the tribulation during this period of time. Now it really begins to escalate from here on out. Now, in, in chapter 16, we have that the, the enemy tries to take out Israel. Now, just as Israel tells of the six woe judgments, now this is why we teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse. He's leading up to chapter 34, but 28 through 35, we have six woe judgments. And then we hit chapter 34, and it's all about the seven-year period of time we call the tribulation. But we found that when we get into it, can you see how the Holy Spirit has woven it all together with these woe judgments? That's not a coincidence. He purposely chooses uh, three woe judgments. And again, the intensity of it as it builds during uh, this period of time has its conclusion. You can turn a page It ends with chapter 16, verse 21. This would be the last woe. This is a final judgment that pretty much destroys planet Earth for all practical purposes. A great hailstone from great hailstones from heaven fell upon man. Every hailstone about stone about the weight of a talent. That's about 75 to 100 pounds, about as heavy as a freight train going down a railroad track. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail since the plague was exceedingly great. When you look at these carefully, darkness being upon the earth, some of them mirror the very judgments that God brought upon the Egyptians when they were being delivered out of Egypt. Some of these are similar. There was hail that fell from heaven mixed with fire, remember? And so we have that. And I'm going to leave that just where it is, and we're going to go to looking at it differently, how Jesus talked about woes. With that, we need to turn to Matthew chapter 23. So we're switching gears just a little bit. The northern part of the Sea of Galilee, Magdal, Capernaum, Capernaum was headquarters, Bethsaida, Chorazin, much of the Gospels center. This is, most of Jesus' ministry was in that north corner of the Sea of Galilee. And he would go to these towns like Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum and would do mighty miracles. But this is what he had to say after he left town. In Matthew 11, verse 21, he says, Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and in Sodom, or in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, when Jonah preached to Nineveh, he didn't give one miracle. He just said, you guys are history, you're toast. God's gonna judge you. 
and yet they all repented without one miracle. Here we have people observing the Lord Jesus Christ doing things only God can do. And he says, woe to you. Why? Because to whom much is given, much is required, right? To whom little is given, little is required. And so don't feel too bad if you haven't been seeing or working in the supernatural only because you have a greater accountability to give an account for. And so he says that to them, but in Matthew 23, I can't read the whole chapter. Um, picking it up, in it we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times Jesus is going to say to these religious scribes and leaders, woe unto you guys. So let's read, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 13. He's standing before them, he calls them blind guides that lay heavy burdens on people's shoulders and they themselves will, selves don't do. But verse 13 is the first woe. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are getting to go in. Jewish traditionalism was that of keeping the law. All of the book of Hebrews is Paul writing to them, explaining, saying, gang, it's different now. There was an old covenant that was Uh, supplanted by a new covenant. The old one was based upon the law which you guys weren't able to keep. Therefore, there's a new covenant. There's a new high priest. There's not gonna be many sacrifices. Now there's only one. What they were continually doing in the presence of the Lord, they saw what he was up to. They knew who he was. They were threatened by their position, their authority. And so they insisted on wanting that respect, wanting to be acknowledged. And um, basically, if I would interpret verse 13, number one, he says, you're not gonna make it. You're not gonna make it into heaven. And what's even worse is because you're in a leadership position and the people look to you for answers, you're causing them also not to enter in. Now, I know this is gonna upset some, But when you have a religious institution that is based upon works being added to the finished work of Christ, you are into heresy. I can't say it any simpler than that. And if you're insistent on that, an infant baptism or um, masses for purgatory, if you're adding to that, the the verbiage is the same here. This is um, um, keeping people out rather than having them trust in the finished work, one-time offering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then you understand the scripture, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I have a lot of religious friends. They go to church every Sunday, but they have no assurance of their salvation. They're not sure they're going to heaven. Well, I am. These things were written that you might know that you have eternal life, and that sets me free. And the reason Jesus is so upset here is you have the religious hierarchy saying, no, 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 you gotta keep the laws and the commandments. 
This was the first big argument in the church in Acts chapter 15. They were preaching the gospel of grace, but some um, Pharisees came up and said, ah, but you gotta add to it circumcision and the law, and then they can be saved. And there's a big, the first big debate in Acts chapter 15 with, with the Gentiles. Do we, we make them get circumcised? Do we make them keep the law? And they wrote a letter and says, no. God saved them apart from any of that stuff. And um, the second, well, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you receive a greater condemnation. Evidently, there are degrees of suffering in hell. And that's what's being implied here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel the land and sea to win one uh, proselyte, and when, they, when you, you have won them, made them convert to Judaism, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you yourself are. Woe to you, blind guides, who say whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple he is obliged to perform it. Down to verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin. And it was, this is what they would actually do uh, when their crop came in. They would count uh, 10 little pieces of cumin, and they'd say, uh, one for the Lord, nine for me. One for the Lord, nine for me. And they would tithe down to that, uh, that small amount. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of extortion, self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. And the last woe is in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And uh, verse 33, he says, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? So here, the Lord is against and calls out in the strongest verbiage that he uses the entire New Testament, is reserved in Matthew 23 against religion. Sometimes I like to get people's attention when they find out I'm a pastor. And I say, well, what do I call you? Reverend Dwight or Pastor Dwight or Father Dwight? What did I says, well, the name is Dwight and that'll do just fine. But they've been pre- pre-programmed to somehow think that I'm on some sort of hierarchy uh, than they are. So I do everything that I can to disarm that. And I said, you know something? I hate religion. Boy, does that get their attention real quick. How can you hate religion? I said, religion keeps people from coming to Jesus. And uh, it gets them thinking. I says, I'm a follower of Jesus, and he spoke more against the religious institution than anybody I've ever met. And... um, I simply have come to him, and he has set me free, and I simply want to tell other people about what he's done for me. And, and that's, that's as simple as it should be. 
So, of course, they have preconceived ideas about you. You're one of those holy rollers. You're one of those Christian fundamentalists, homophobic, fill in the blank, on and on and on and on. Can you take it? Can you? Because the Lord says, if they hated me, what? They're going to hate you too. So it says, if the world loves you, know that I'm not of the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's all of the world, but it's not of the Father. So we're not into that. There's nothing wrong with having that, but if that's what you're into, then that's a whole other subject, isn't it? All right, that's what the Lord had to say about it. In the book of Jude, it's only one chapter long, I'll quote Jude 1, and then I'll quote Paul about the terminology in this word, woe. The whole chapter is about false teachers, and Jude calls them out. People today don't think we should expose false doctrine. I would take the strong opposite opinion that if you're not, you really don't care about them, and you don't care if they're being deceived or not. Jude said, woe concerning the judgment of false prophets. He names three people from the Old Testament. He names Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And he says in verse 11, Woe unto them who, false teachers, for they have gone in the way of Cain. What was Cain all about? Well, he killed Abel, right? So he was jealous. His offering wasn't accepted. And he was uh, doing it by works. Abel brought a blood offering that was acceptable. And... um, Evidently, Cain wasn't following what the Lord wanted, so he brought his own works as an offering. Not acceptable. So we have that doctrine. The heir of Cain, or the heir of trying to get there by works. And then there was the heir of Balaam. Well, who's Balaam? Remember, he was hired by King Balak of Moab to curse Israel. And he said, well... You couldn't give me a whole house full of gold and I, and I would do it. Hint, hint. <laughs> he says, well, how about if we give you a whole house full of gold? Would you do it? Okay, let's go. <laughs> That's what he wanted. He was on the take. My question, in the last days, do we see ministries that are really on the take? And people see through it. And that's what we're up against. I have people, sometimes visitors come up and says, when, when do you take the collection? I said, we don't. You don't take a collection. No, when we get to the Bible and we talk about money, I'll talk about it then. But I don't want you to come here and you're just waiting for me to start talking about money. People come in, they wait for, when is the money part coming up? And it doesn't come up. Sometimes it comes up. Came up this morning, did it? But in a a, what a beautiful, wonderful way. People are starving in Haiti. Do you want to do anything about it? Nobody pressured you. And uh, out of... Whatever the Lord put on your heart, Paul says, preach the gospel, but remember the poor. So we we do that from time to time. And the Lord, I think, honors that and blesses that. But we're not going to be bought. We're not going to change things. I'm not going to treat one person better because he might be wealthier than somebody else. God is no respecter of people. Amen? Neither should we be. Then the last one, and, and they perished in the, the um, rebellion of Korah. Korah was a guy who would say was, um, wanted, wanted to do his own thing against Moses. 
And he was always challenging Moses about something and trying to get the people to go back to Egypt. He was, he was a rebel. And, um, and the Lord took care of him and took him out. The earth opened up. And um, uh, we, we find that today people have gotten to the place where in our generation, because the church has become so lethargic when it comes to compromising this book, that they go to church for a while, but it's so watered down, they don't get anything, so they become disillusioned, and they just quit completely. And so we see that happening. And um, so we have this happening in the church, and, and um, it's one of the things that the Bible says in the last days would be happening. Now, just the opposite. This is the third one we'll close with this morning. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul's talking about the ministry, picking it up in verse 16. Paul's just the opposite when it comes of uh, what he's serving the Lord for. In verse 15 he says, but I have used none of these, nor have I written these things that it should be done so for to me. For it would be better for me to die than anyone should uh, make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me. Now he's pronouncing a woe upon himself. If I don't preach the gospel, Paul is thinking with knowing what I know, and I keep that back from other people, then he says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will I have been, I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may preach the gospel of Christ without charge, I may not be, that I might not abuse my authority in the gospel. My Bible says, freely you have received. Is there anything that you've done to earn your salvation? Is there any way you can buy somebody out of purgatory? No, it's free. So if it's been freely given to us, then there should be no alternative motive when we share with other people except to hopefully see them get saved. Good place for an amen. Amen. That should be our motive. And the fact that anything other than what am I going to get out of that should enter your mind, then that is not of the Lord. He is saying that he is so grateful for what the Lord has done for him. He says, woe is me with everything that I know. You think I'm, Paul was the one that says, I'm not going to back down from preaching the whole counsel of God. All of it. Even the tough parts when I got to talk about the tribulation and woe judgments. Now who wants to go home and have lunch after that? <laughs> you know? I'll tell you how I'd like to end this this morning. As you leave this morning, you're entering the mission field. And here's my prayer. That we're not the frog in the kettle. That we, go, we don't get so dumbed down with everyday stuff that's happening that makes us numb. That we don't have some sort of urgency here. And we realize that this is right around the corner. And we can get caught up with a lot of stuff. So we're talking priorities. The other thing that I was reminded of that I added to the study, the last thing, is I remembered the movie Schindler's List. And even when it was happening, 
People couldn't believe it was happening. People in Auschwitz who lived there wouldn't believe it was happening. I've been there and talked to them. Well, they eventually figured it out. But something so horrendous. Well, Oscar Schindler saw what was going on. And uh, you know the story, for those of you who haven't, he's not a Jew, but he would hire as many Jews as he can so they wouldn't go to the concentration camp. And then when he ran out, out of the money from his business, he went into his personal account. And then at the end of the movie, the very, very last scene of Schindler's List, you have him and there's all these Jews that have been saved uh, that are coming up to him and thanking him. And he breaks down into tears, not because they're saved, but he's looking at this gold ring that he's got on and he takes it off and he says, you know how many more I could have bought with this? And I kept it for myself. That cut me to the quick because I am so guilty of that one. And there really is so much more that we could do. But the danger of the last days is not being lukewarm or indifferent. But looking at the scriptures for exactly what is around the corner. And if we see it, don't hold your tongue. Don't be afraid to call a spade a spade and let the people know really where they're going. You know, once you've done that, you know, that's all the Lord wants you to do. He doesn't want you to call that person back up and say, did you you listen to what I had to say? No. The Lord says, you plant a seed, I'll water it. I'll send somebody else around. So don't lay any guilt trips on you if you get blown off. Just speak the truth in love. Trust the Holy Spirit that he's able to take those words and actually get people to think about it. I can't tell you how many times I've simply shared with somebody, and they would stop me mid-sentence. He says, you know, just yesterday, some guy was telling me exactly word for word what you're telling me today. And I'd sort of look at him and go, duh, (laughs) you know, trying to get your attention. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand one close with a word of prayer. Lord, as we make our way through your word this morning, difficult subject, but Lord, we thank you that as we deal with current events, that we don't want to be that proverbial frog that is desensitized, but Lord, we would sense an urgency for our loved ones to speak the truth in love. And we do pray, Lord, this morning for loved ones that we have. Whatever it takes, Lord, we just pray that you'd get their attention in these last days because we really do not want them to enter into this period of time. You told the Church of Philadelphia, you have little strength, but you've kept my word and not denied my name. You promised to keep that church from this period of time, the great trial that would come upon the whole world. Lord, that's who we want to be, but we have loved ones that want to be involved with that number. Bless your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.